What should be the position or engagement of Christians when it comes to things like enforcement and protection of our communities or country? That's what we're going to talk about today on the All Things to All People podcast. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the All Things to All People podcast with Michael Burns. I am Michael Burns. For the entirety of the second season, we have been going through uh, issues surrounding and relating to Christian engagement when it comes to politics, justice, and the like, and using as somewhat of a guide Uh, Sometimes loosely, sometimes more directly, my book, Escaping the Beast, Politics, Allegiance, and Kingdom, and we're going to continue that today. We are coming near the end. The end of season two is in sight. Uh, Actually, at the end of season two, we're going to have a couple of more episodes that aren't directly related to Escaping the Beast or even political engagement. We're going to have some Uh, Just cool sort of ad hoc topics, uh, two or three episodes there, but we are uh, still in in the world of, I guess is the best way to put it, of engaging in politics. And what are we going to do? there what's the way forward and and as always and throughout this season not trying to set up that i have all the answers here or even that combined my guests and all of their insight and knowledge that we have all of the answers or we're right in all of this but trying to start the conversation and get us as a kingdom people thinking about you know, what is our perspective on these things? What is our uh, theology? What is our, uh, you know, what is the conversation that we're having? How do we think about engaging in these issues? And so as we get into the topic surrounding the chapter on engaging in enforcement issues, chapter 25, kind of gone back and forth and debated how to present this and has some different ideas at times and even thought about bringing people of different perspectives on to have a discussion and um, just through some scheduling things and, and things like that, that didn't necessarily work. But ultimately what I've decided on is I'm going to stick pretty closely in this episode to the chapter. Um, much more so than on many of the other topics that we've done, especially recently. So I'm going to jump in, and and the chapter begins uh, with an incident, an account of an incident that actually took place very close to where we live in uh, Roseville, Minnesota. This incident took place in Falcon Heights, It's the neighboring community, and it's actually um, uh, where this incident took place. My oldest son, at the time that this happened, drove down that same street by that same spot 
almost daily. And so it's, it's something that, uh, you know, definitely uh, caught our attention, not that it wouldn't have, but especially so because it was right in our backyard, so to speak. It happened on July 6, 2016. A 32-year-old man named Philando Castile, a longtime employee of the St. Paul School District, was pulled over by a police officer uh, just a couple miles, as I said, from my home and on the same street that my 21-year-old son, as I said, drove down every day to go to work. Accompanying Castile in the vehicle were his girlfriend and their four-year-old daughter. They They were returning from grocery shopping. Officer Geronimo Yanez, whose dash cam was recording the incident, radioed in that he was going to pull Castile's car over and check his ID because his, quote, wide-set nose fit the description of a robbery suspect in the area. Once he'd pulled him over, Yanez asked Castile for his license and registration. While reaching for his identification... Philando did what the law required of him, informing the officer that he had a legally registered firearm in the car. Officer Yanez began to shout at Castile, telling him, don't reach for it then. With Castile responding that, I'm, I, I was reaching for, Yanez shouted again, don't pull it out. And Castile replied with, I'm not pulling it out. His girlfriend said, he's not. Yanez repeated, don't pull it out. And then shot at Philando in close range seven times, five of those striking him, two piercing his heart. Then Philando's girlfriend uttered, You just killed my boyfriend. Philando forced out, I wasn't reaching. She confirmed his last words, He wasn't reaching. This incident hit home for many people around the United States and the world that had grown weary of increasing militarization of the police and a perceived penchant for shooting first and asking questions later, especially when it comes to men of color. Before grief and outrage could really set in around the country, though, another tragedy struck. Former Afghan War Army vet Micah Johnson who was enraged over police shootings of black men, sought revenge on July 7th, 2016. He fired on a group of police officers in Dallas, Texas, wounding nine and taking the lives of five police officers, Lauren Ahrens, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Brent Thompson, and Patricio Zamaripa. Johnson stated that he wanted to kill white people, especially white police officers. After the shooting, Johnson fled into a building on the campus of El Centro College and following a three-hour standoff, was killed by police with a bomb attached to a remote-control bomb disposal unit. The reaction to this horrific event was swift by many around the country, especially those who feel that police are heroic defenders of the public good who are much maligned and misrepresented as targeting certain groups of people. The divide between those two perspectives is often deep 
real, and emotional. The perception is that the two camps of those who are critical of police tactics and inappropriate police action and those who wholeheartedly support the police are divided along racial lines. While there may be some statistical truth in that, the divide is often more cultural and political than strictly racial. Those from cultural backgrounds that experienced governing and policing forces that terrorized black people, for example, still tend to fear and mistrust the police. Those from cultural and economic backgrounds that experience the police as a positive and consistently safe force for good in their lives tend to support the police when any controversial issue breaks into the news. There's also truth in the assertion that the politically conservative tend to take the side of the authorities, while those who are politically liberal tend to take the side of the marginalized and those without power. Both events were tragic. That is true whenever lives are lost. The divide that quickly erupted once again in my own country after these two incidents on consecutive July days seeped its way into many churches. How could Christians possibly respond? How are we going to respond? Those who spoke out against the seeming injustice of July 6th and the need for police accountability were quickly shouted down on July 7th by those who felt that policemen who were unappreciated and unfairly cast were now under assault, and it was those critics' fault. The same serious lines of division that appear in the world potentially run right down the middle of any culturally, economically, and ethnically diverse church. It's not just issues over policing that can divide us. Church members can develop very divergent attitudes toward war and the military. In my own country, the current majority response is to support both police and military with an almost religious devotion. It's become an accepted tenet that protecting innocent human life is the greatest possible good. And so those who undertake that mission, risking their own lives at times, have become the greatest heroes. Certainly, it's not wrong to respect and support those institutions to a degree, but should what should be the role of kingdom people when it comes to these enforcement issues? I, I'm from a military family, and I have profound gratitude for the sacrifices that the men and women who serve in the military and in police forces have made. I respect that. It's not, however, the issue when it comes to the Christian response and participation with these forces. Now, my proposed position here will be easily misunderstood if we do not keep firmly in mind everything we've talked about up to this point. And that's our calling to be the people of the new creation. There are two ages at work work in the world today. The present age has its weapons and approaches that it can and must at times take. And those who have entered the age to come through Christ have our own. We have a different agenda. 
And when we don't realize that, we start to live out the present age agenda and use those weapons and responses and no longer demonstrate the kingdom of God. If we forget this purpose, this vocation, we can easily then come to different conclusions from what I will suggest here. So we do well here to keep in mind that one of the primary criticisms leveled against Christians of the first three centuries after Christ, in addition to their hesitancy to participate in public offices and political matters, was that they would not join the Roman military, which served as both their police force and their armed forces. There were apparently, from time to time, records of a number of Roman soldiers who had converted to Christianity while in service. There was really no option for them to simply opt out of their generally a 25-year commitment in the Roman army. But once they became Christian, they were expected to request a role that would not cause them to take a life. A conviction about life that was virtually synonymous with becoming a Christian. And they were expected to get out of the Roman army as soon as they could. Those who willingly joined the military after becoming a Christian, though, were typically removed from fellowship within the church. Now, there's obviously some exceptions to all of that, but this is this is the standard position. And some will say, well, you know, the real problem with the Roman military was, was idolatry that you had to take part in, uh, in being a Roman soldier. And that was certainly an issue, but it was not the only issue and, and perhaps not even the primary one. The Christians, and this is important, were not hostile to the military. They didn't preach that Failure to immediately leave the military was a sin, or that the ideal state was for the nation to lay down its arms. You don't, you don't find that. Hey, Rome, you all, we need to disband this army. They recognized that these were necessary functions of the nations that are part of the present age. This was a res- reality of the present age. But they're also clear that this wasn't the realm in which Christians could function or should. To do so would be a complete loss of the understanding of what it meant to be a citizen of the kingdom in their eyes. Uh, There could be no primary national allegiance outside of the kingdom. There could be no inclusion of taking life in the life of the age to come. There could be no enemies, no hate, no vengeance. They were to be a people who would overcome evil with good alone, not using the weapons of the world. Their primary role was to pray for peace, and they took that responsibility very seriously, believing it to be of great impact. Now, they did their best to be good citizens of the empire, but that was never their highest priority. Their greatest concern 
was showing the world what it will look like to live under God's reign in the renewed creation. Anything that betrays that takes us off mission. That was their focus. It wasn't to live the best life now, the most successful life now, the most comfortable life now. It was to show people the life of the age to come. Now in the present age, even when that becomes awkward or seemingly untenable or dangerous for us to do so. Our allegiance must be to God and his kingdom alone, but one of the things that gets us off track the quickest is a subtle lie that protecting human life is the highest good. Now it's good to protect others. I, will, I wouldn't begin to deny that. But when it becomes the highest good, that leads us down wrong roads. It's important. It's important to protect life. We should do so whenever we can. We should be prepared to do so at our own risk. But it's not the highest good. Peace that comes through the sword may preserve some lives while taking others, but it does not point to the kingdom of God, and that is our mission. That's the strange dichotomy of kingdom life. Life in the present age is important but not the most important. Christian, Christian Wolf and McNally Linz, uh, perfectly, uh, Miroslav, Miroslav Wolf and uh, McNally Linz perfectly describe the balance that we seek. Our biological lives, they say, are a precious gift from God, and intentionally terminating lives is an evil, but, they continue, our biological lives are not our highest good. So death is not the greatest evil. We cannot simply throw out the mission to display and spread the kingdom of God to the world and to do so, I might add, through peaceful means. In the false pursuit of preserving biological life, it is good, but not the greatest good. But what if everyone in an entire country became a kingdom citizen? How could that country function? That's not a simple question. There's not a simple answer, but Jesus was clear about the road of those truly following him and that it would be really narrow and sparsely populated, according to Matthew seven fourteen, which keeps an entirely Christian citizenry kind of a remote possibility if Jesus was correct. Many, says Jesus, will claim the name of Christ, but few will do the will of the Father. Jesus was really largely uninterested in how many people claimed to be Christians. He wasn't, he wasn't keeping numbers up, you know, like, wow, have you seen my follower stats lately? They're looking really good. He was more concerned with who actually did his will who was carrying out his mission, not just saying that they were Christian. It's really irrelevant how many people say they're Christian. It's how many people live like Jesus called us to live as we follow him. 
So can uh, can our position be to simply refuse service in the military and police forces, though? We have to keep in mind that we're also called to stand for justice. But I think that's a stand that should not be biased by our economic or racial identity or a national loyalty. To be a blessing to all is our goal. On the other hand, earthly justice is a good priority, but will become an idol if we allow it to become the greatest good in our mind. The kingdom is good news for all, but especially for the marginalized and oppressed, according to Jesus. That reminds me that our greatest work for justice should be focused on the poor, the homeless, the prisoner, the refugee, the defeated, the the outsiders. It can be easy to draw the line of good and bad so that it separates us and the other, quote, good people from the, you know, those bad guys. Anyone then dealing with the bad guys, regardless of the message they use, of the methods they use, rather, becomes a hero for us. Now, I appreciate, I can appreciate the work that these men and women do to bring order to society. But that can't blind me to working for justice and fair treatment for all. You can do both. It should. That doesn't mean we demonize those who, who, those who are keeping peace, but we got to find a balance. In the 2010s, for example, 69% of professing evangelicals approved of the actions of the American CIA and their treatment of suspected terrorists in detention. I find that mind-numbingly shocking. That's a higher percentage of approval than non-Christians had. Evangelicals were also the group most likely to deny that the behavior amounted to torture. If the only purpose in life for the follower of Jesus is to demonstrate and display his kingdom, what do statistics like that tell us, tell the world about the kingdom of God? Now, in Matthew 25, Jesus chides those who claim to follow him but fail to share examples of the kingdom with those in need. And in so doing, we're limited to the weapons of the kingdom. But what if we applied Jesus' logic to other areas? What would be our response be if he said, I was tortured and you approved it because I was not a citizen of your country? Or, I was beaten by policemen, but you turned a blind eye because I was deemed a criminal. Just because someone commits a crime doesn't mean that we are not to love them and work for fair and just treatment for them. I'm not saying we just anarchy, let them do whatever they want. But authorities have a role and kingdom people have a role. That's the whole point of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Loving the other. Anyone could support their police officers and military heroes, and that's not a bad thing. But no one will naturally show love for the criminals that those police officers are arresting or for the terrorists that those soldiers are hunting down. I'm not suggesting that we stand in the way and not allow the police and military to do 
their jobs. But our role remains to cry out for force to be as limited and controlled as possible, justice to, to be applied equally for all, and treatment to be as fair and humane as it possibly can be. What we cannot do is simply label someone a bad guy and then write them off. We must wrestle with what it would look like to radically love even the worst sing sinner with God's kingdom love. And I see that often with those who would say that they're followers of Jesus. Oh, lock them up and throw away the key. Oh, bomb them back to the Stone Ages. They're the bad guys, so it's okay. They would take the lives of innocent people, so I don't care how they're treated. That's not the position of a kingdom person. There is no call for kingdom people, though, to use violence ever. The New Testament never calls kingdom people, those in Christ, to use violence. The closest thing to an argument that can be mustered is when Jesus demanded his disciples sell their cloak and buy a sword if they didn't have one. They quickly scrambled and found two, according to Luke in chapter 22, verse 38, which two swords is hardly enough for 12 men to mount in defense if that was the intention. Or even if we exclude Jesus and say the other 11, two swords, that that's not going to mount a defense. But Jesus actually makes it clear there that the reason he told them to get swords is solely to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah would be found among the transgressors. It's verse 37. Later on, when they used one of the swords in a violent manner, Jesus rebuked them. No question. He said, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will live by this. I'm sorry, for all those who draw the sword will die by the sword. Jesus made it clear that he could call a vast army of angels if that were going to be his play. But that's not what the kingdom is about. Early church leader Tertullian kind of famously quipped that in disarming Peter, Jesus disarmed every soldier who would follow him. He also asserted that it was only without the sword that Christians can wage war because the Lord has abolished the sword from the arsenal of the kingdom. You can point to other passages where Jesus says, you know, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. But in the ancient world, swords had two purposes. One was uh, violence and killing, but the other purpose of a sword was for cutting and dividing. And that's clearly what Jesus is referring to there. He says, this is going to divide families, the truth that I'm preaching. Now, some folks might point to the fact that soldiers were not called to immediately leave their positions in the New Testament. For example, in a conversation with John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Now, an example like that, though, that, that comes through Jesus' life and is before the opening of the kingdom. 
And so it kind of falls into the same realm as arguments that baptism isn't necessary because the thief on the cross was never baptized, but how could you be baptized into Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection before he died and was resurrected? Also, I think of importance is that John tells the soldiers, don't exhort money, but that's actually according to experts, a poor rendering of the term he uses, the word there, diaceo, is used only here in the entire New Testament, only place in the New Testament. And it means to shake violently by intimidation or force. The term could easily, and from what I've read, I I believe should have been translated in its full meaning, which would have John saying something like, do not inflict violence or intimidation on anyone. Police and military have the authority among the nations of the present age as the governing forces to use the sword. Absolutely. Not saying there should be no military, no police. I'm against them. Not in the least. But that is not the realm of the kingdom person. That's my assertion. It's not our mission. That's not one of our weapons. Knowing this should challenge and change how we think and engage in these areas. we got to demonstrate a love for all and a desire to see justice done, even for those who might be the least worthy of it. Now, representing the standard teaching of the early church, Tertullian, who writes late 2nd, early 3rd century, Northern Africa, He says, but now the inquiry is made about this point, whether a believer may turn himself unto military service and whether the military may be admitted unto the faith, even the rank and file or each inferior grade to whom there is no necessity for taking part in sacrifices or capital punishments. There is no agreement between the divine and the human sacrament, the standard of Christ and the standard of the devil, the camp of light and the camp of darkness. One soul cannot be due to two masters, God and Caesar. And to use the terminology that we've been using on this podcast and this book, you cannot serve both the nations and the kingdom. They have different purposes. Tertullian goes on to list several objections that critics might raise in regarding all the figures from the old covenant who engaged in war. He's aware of those examples. But he drew a sharp line of distinction between that time and those who were now citizens of the kingdom. And he says, But how will a Christian man war, nay, how will he serve even in peace without a sword, which the Lord has taken away? For albeit soldiers had come unto John and received the formula of their rule, albeit likewise a centurion had believed, still the Lord afterward, in disarming Peter, unbelted every soldier, no dress is lawful among us if assigned 
to any unlawful action. And when he says unbelted every soldier, taking away the sword as their weapon, he's not saying every Roman soldier. He's saying every Christian, every kingdom person who was a soldier and has become a kingdom person, they cannot use that sword to kill. The early Christians, this was not necessarily a popular stance. They were accused of profiting from the work of the soldier while refusing to take part in it. They were accused of benefiting from Rome but showing no loyalty to her. They countered that by saying that they weren't cowards. In fact, they argued they'd make the best soldiers because they proved regularly that they weren't afraid of death. They were not soldiers, they argued, because it was not part of the realm of the kingdom. Again, Tertullian writes, For what wars should we not be fit, not eager, even with unequal forces? We who so willingly yield ourselves to the sword, if in our religion it were not counted better to be slain than to slay. He goes on to point out that because of this refusal to join in their policing and military actions, the Romans deemed the Christians as enemies. But they should be grateful for this. Because he says, if any other group were truly opposed to the Romans as their enemies and living among them as the Christians were, they could raise insurrection and cause major problems, but the Christians would do no such thing. They lived in peace and they prayed for the Romans. So even though the Romans called them enemies, the more Christians there were, the fewer enemies Rome had. He said, you may see us as enemies, but we're not going to try to overthrow you, take up sword against you. We pray for you. Utilizing the positions of these early Christians is not so that we can establish doctrine based on their practices. Rather, I think the value in it is to look at the examples of these disciples who were closest to the teaching of the apostles, and in some cases, new people who had learned directly from the apostles. But we want to see how they implemented and lived out the scriptures. It can be very helpful and instructive as we try to do the same thing to live by the word. Now, I'm aware that at this point, many Christians in the modern era might point to World War II. Isn't this a shining example of good coming through military and political might? Many innocent lives were saved. How can that be anything but good? To be clear, I would never argue that it's not positive to save human lives. But as kingdom people, if war is the only response we can think of to stop violence of that nature, we need to think more deeply. Citing Romans 13, 1 to 7, if you're not familiar with that passage, I would urge you to read it. 
nations may deem it necessary to engage in war at times. This is where historic Christian arguments of just war might be quite applicable as we seek to ensure that our nations engage in just and limited war. I think that's a great role for Christians. Is this a just war? But I think a lot of times we start to blur that line and say, well, is it a just war? And if so, then we can go engage in it. I would argue no. Second, merely because it limits evil, which is the role of governing authorities, that does not necessitate that killing others or involvement in that war with the possibility of killing another is a viable option for a kingdom citizen. Third, was World War II the best option or the only option for the nations? Maybe. But the results have been complicated, to say the least. Absolutely. Millions of innocent lives were saved, but at the cost of 75 to 80 million lives during the war itself. And the war set in motion political events that have resulted in the death of countless millions more around the world since. It, it resulted in other governments being set up and ongoing conflicts and, and so many other things. And that tends to be what happens with the solutions of the world. You fix the problem in one area, but it causes massive problems in another area. The, it seems good. It seems right. But it's problematic. The early church faced the constant pull to support Rome's military wars, uh, to support their military and their wars, uh, and to provide stability and peace around the world. But they consistently argued that their role was a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests who prayed for peace, not a people that picked up the sword. They were criticized and called traitors, but they remained solid on that point for nearly 300 years. So we can acknowledge the right of governing authorities to limit evil while recognizing that it might not be our role. We can respect and appreciate that role without participating in it. It would not be hypocrisy then to call a police officer, for example, if we're being threatened by a criminal. That's their role in the present age. But we have a kingdom agenda. We promote life and justice without either of those becoming exaggerated to the role of the highest good. We cannot abandon our kingdom principles in the name of preserving biological life or temporary justice, nor can we limit justice to certain portions of the population by reducing it to throwing the bad guys in jail or bombing evil nations. When looking to the coming of the Messiah, Isaiah described this kingdom that we have now, prophesying that nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Isaiah 2, 2-4. This limitation to our proper role is not going to be popular among the nations. Might not even be popular 
amongst ourselves. But it will be a light if we hold firm to our conviction and calling. Now, let me be clear here. We should never look down upon those who've taken up these dangerous vocations. It's a really difficult role, monumentally so. But before kingdom citizens decide to go down these paths or continue in them, we should carefully wrestle with what our role in the world is to be. And if we can reflect the light of that role well in those positions. So, should Christians be police officers or soldiers? I don't think it's possible to make a definitive statement and answer for all people everywhere in every situation. And believe me, I'm tempted to do so based on my own convictions. There are some countries, though, where it's not even a choice to enter the armed forces for a period of time. I am not sitting here looking down my nose at other Christians who may be police officers or in the military. I respect and love and value them. If you are one of them, I respect and value and love you. I don't look down on you. I don't think you're in a fallen state. I don't think you're evil. But I would urge you to rethink these things. Study out the scriptures. Look at the lived examples of the early church. Perhaps an important question here is, could I serve in one of these ways and remain loyal to Jesus and all that he taught? Since the 4th century, we have a record of sincere Christians who have engaged in this topic. I forgot to turn my alarm off on my phone, so you just heard it there for a second. Sincere Christians have engaged in this topic, and they've not often found agreement. Now, for the first three centuries, there was not a disagreement. After the time of Constantine, you have guys come around, Augustine, Ambrose, and on it goes, and they start arguing that, well, you, you know, you can have your kingdom piety inside and then in the outside serve the nations and their agenda and take up a sword. And so you can, in that sense, love your enemy on the inside, but kill him on the outside. And there's been sincere debates and ever since about can Christians do this? What is just when it comes to war or issues of law enforcement and so on? As with other areas of dispute, it's important for each individual and spiritual community to wrestle with kingdom values and make the decision that they feel is the most faithful without passing judgment on others who come to a different conclusion. Although we can try to keep lovingly convincing one another of our position. But before a Christian willingly undertakes one of those vocations... I would encourage them to carefully study out the New Testament with special emphasis 
on the Sermon on the Mount to determine whether they could live by every word of Jesus in that sermon while serving in that role. And I would add here, without the false biblical dilemma of making biological life the highest priority, the prime directive. I, I would apply this line of thinking to any related vocation, whether it be lawyer, judge, county official, anything like that, that's involved in like legal system, government system, you know, military support, whatever. I'll never presume to make a biblical statement that Christians should not be involved in those professions, but I would encourage anyone considering them to consider how they might engage in those fields without compromising any kingdom standards. If they can't find a way to do that, then I would counsel them to consider engaging with society in a different field. And I'll add here one of one of the issues I think too to be considered in this is when you join the military is who owns you. The very name GI means government issue. It kind of means you belong to the government. They can tell you where to go, what to do, when to do it. You belong to them. Is that an appropriate vocation for a kingdom person? Again, for those in the military, I absolutely love and respect you. But at the same time, I'm going to try to convince you, convict you in another direction. So uh, there's no need to see me as the enemy. I'm not advocating that we drum everyone out of the church. That was a position often taken in the early centuries of the church, but I, I think each generation has to deal with where they're at and apply the principles of Scripture and what makes the most sense. And I don't think that's the solution for us right now. But I think these are serious issues. Issues of peace, being a, a people of peace. If if we're not a kingdom of peace, then how are we different from the world? I think that's a really key part. Is, you know, what what does that look like? And and let me just read here. Let me step away from the chapter for a second and, and read a bunch of quotes uh, again from the early church and just them wrestling with how important it was to be a people of peace. Uh, Athengoras writing in uh, around 175 AD says, we have learned not to return blow for blow, nor to go to law with those who plunder and rob us. Not only that, but those who strike us on one side of the face, we've learned to offer the other side also. Clement of Alexandria in 195 says the spiritual man never cherishes resentment or harbors a grudge against anyone, even though deserving of hatred for his conduct. Um, Tertullian, uh, I've read several quotes from him already. He said, men of old, this is Old Testament time, were used to requiring eye for eye and tooth for tooth and to repay evil for evil with usury. But after Christ has supervened and has united the grace of faith with patience, now it is no longer lawful to attack others, even with words. 
nor to merely say fool without danger of the judgment. Christ says, love your enemies and bless your cursors and pray for your persecutors. In early 4th century work, it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the expression of justice. However, his injunction that a man who is struck on one cheek should offer the other also, that is the expression of goodness. Now are justice and goodness opposed to each other? Far from it. Rather, there has only been advancement from simple justice to positive goodness. So he says in the Old Testament time, you had simple justice. Now we have positive goodness in the kingdom. Tertullian again says, if someone attempts to provoke by physical violence, the admonition of the Lord is at hand. He says, to him who strikes you in the face, turn the other cheek also. Let outrageousness be worn out by your patience. Whatever that blow may be, joined with pain and scorn, it will receive a heavier one from the Lord. For what difference is there between provoker and provoked? The only difference is that the former was the first to do evil, but the latter did evil afterwards. Each one stands condemned in the eyes of the Lord for hurting a man. The commandment is absolute. Evil is not to be repaid with evil. Now, I've sometimes heard people sort of almost dismiss the Sermon on the Mount by saying that Jesus meant this only to apply to our response to uh, religious persecution. Poppycock. Nowhere does it say that. And that's certainly not how the Christians for the first 300 years took it. They took this to be a holistic approach of the kingdom of peace. It starts to push into the realm of the uncomfortable uh, for many of us. He says, the Lord will save them in that day. This is Tertullian again. Even his people like sheep. No one gives the name of sheep to those who fall in battle with arms in hand or those who are killed when repelling force with force, or in other words, violence with violence. Rather, it is given only to those who are slain, yielding themselves up in their own place of duty with patience rather than in fighting in self-defense. If Jesus wanted us to use violence, he wouldn't have called us sheep, says Tertullian. He goes on and says, we willingly yield ourselves to the sword. So what wars would we not be both fit and eager to participate in? I read this quote already, uh, even against unequal forces, if in our religion it were not counted better to be slain than to slay. This is just a different translation, so I want to read it again. And, and Camodanius, in around 240, says, do not willingly use force and do not return force when it is used against you. This is how they applied scripture. So we've got to wrestle with this stuff. Not based on feeling, emotion. I think you even have to set aside patriotism and some of those things which can be good. But to, to see clearly, you have to set those aside for a moment and say, what does Scripture call me to do? What is my role as a kingdom person? The nations have their role and it's legitimate. And I'm not arguing that it's, that it's not. They have the swords, as Romans 13 but Romans 12 makes very clear what the role of the kingdom person is. It's not to use violence. It's to love enemies. It's to let the Lord handle vengeance and enforcement 
and those sorts of things. And he gives that over to the nations to limit violence in the present age. But we are the beacons, the lighthouse of the age to come. So we haven't covered every possible topic when it comes to engagement in the political world, not even close. But hopefully this gives us a sample of enough areas to demonstrate how we might think about and work through challenging complexities as God's kingdom people. Most of all, I think we need to be respectful. Again, if you're in the military, you're a police officer, and you're a disciple, I respect you. I love you. I appreciate what you do. I don't look down on you. I don't think you're lesser. But I would urge you to examine these convictions. That might lead to some challenging decisions and thoughts. But that's what following Jesus is about for all of us. We all have things to lay down. I think we'll stop there. Um, And I'm looking forward to the next episode. I want to look at my notes and make sure I'm correct. Yep, we're going to have... um, a special guest, Kyle Spears, is going to come on and we're going to chat about effective communication, how we can have conversations and, and talk about things that aren't uh, damaging, that aren't ineffective, as a way to kind of wrap up uh, the, the, the topic here on politics and so on. So that will be, um, the next episode will be our last on politics in the kingdom directly. And then, as I said, we'll have a couple more episodes rounding out the season. And soon we will be at, hey, season three. Imagine that. So thanks for joining me today on the All Things to All People podcast. If you have any questions or feedback, you can write me at all things to all people podcast at gmail.com. Please do remember that I am, as you listen to this, still on sabbatical, coming back soon. So I will get to the emails and feedback and whatnot at that point. You can always go to Michael Burns Teaching Ministry.com and buy any of my books. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll see you next time on the All Things to All People podcast. Thank you.